We're here today with Will Lamb. Will, thank you for coming into the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Jake. It's good to see you. We're office mates this year, teaching U.S. history together. Just gave our midterm. How do you think it went, Will? I think it went well. Uh, talking with my students afterward, I think uh, they crushed it. Um, try to be really transparent um, with the test before. And I found that um, I think part of it is like getting them to know the material, but a lot of it is just like being there, being available, making sure that they feel really reassured and confident. Are you, uh, are you enjoying, I guess this is the first year, right? This is your first year as a Penn Fellow, so first experience teaching. Has, um, has it been a good year so far in the U.S. history classroom? Oh, it's been awesome. Um, I'm blessed with incredible students um, who've stayed super engaged, and uh, they've been really helpful in understanding that I'm also a first-year teacher, um, and I'd be, and I'm completely transparent with them that there's going to be a little bit of experimentation um, in trying to find our groove. So, what's it been like for you with the Penn Fellowship uh, experience that's happening at the same time as you're in the classroom teaching? Um, I know that you have essays and different assignments that you're working on for Penn during the year. How have you found this, I guess, joint teaching experience with Penn classes and then practical experience? It's awesome, Um, especially getting to connect with other fellows at other schools and seeing the different sort of school cultures. I feel like I get a sort of um, macro view on independent schools in general. And they also like get us to reflect on the institution that we work at. Um, So with Portrait of a Learner and seeing um, my student go through his experiences, um, I've started thinking about like bigger institutional things at Gilman, like the fact that it's all boys, the fact that it's K through 12, and how a lot of those factors sort of inform the kid's experience. It's pretty cool. Are you writing about those macro issues here at Gilman or, or uh, like the boys' school environment? And I know there's a history paper that you write or the history of the institution paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of things are you writing about for those topics? Yeah, so we just did Portrait of a Learner. So we um, kind of go with a student, observe their overall experiences, conduct a couple of interviews with them. And I would say um, we're asked to sort of situate their experiences within the broader context at Gilman. Um, And one of the coolest things that I've begun to realize at Gilman that I didn't really observe prior to the um, assignment was the fact that a lot of these boys have friendships that are from middle school. Mm -hmm. So they're bringing a lot um, 9 through 12th, whereas if you go to a 9 through 12 High school, everybody sort of starts off brand new, it feels, and there's a lot of that. Um, so it's a completely different experience. So um, things like that have given me better insight on being a teacher and um, kind of tapping into the relationships that I have with my students. So I know you went to an independent school, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience in high school at an independent school, and then maybe, you know, some of the things that you've noticed from going, you know, from from that experience to Gilman, which is all boys in Baltimore. I'm sure there are some similarities, but there are a lot of differences maybe from the experience you had in high school. Absolutely. Um, Similarities and differences. 
Um, so I went to a boarding environment um, in the Northeast. And so that is one of the biggest um, differences that I've noticed is that a lot of times students um, and teachers um, don't really get to interact a lot with parents and families. And I think what is like a unique sort of awesome thing that I've noticed at Gilman is there's more of a community um, in the localized sense, um, given that a lot of these families are more local. Um, and so you kind of get to see a sort of interaction with the local community, whereas um, I went to a more international em environment, um, which was pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of opened my eyes to the power of independent schools and being able to sort of leverage their resources um, in creating like a really fun environment. So what, what year did you start at Andover? Yeah. Ninth grade? Yeah, ninth grade. Yeah, and so ninth through twelfth, and I was a local boarder. So I lived in the nearby town, which was a ten-minute drive um, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. So I kind of got the best of both worlds of being able to connect with family um, any weekend I kind of wanted to, but still really being in an immersive environment, like sleeping in the dorms, being around all the kids. So it was it was great. Do you remember, I guess, when you first got to Andover and, you know, you're walking around, like, your first impressions of the place and maybe how, you know, you adapted to that a different environment there? Yeah, it was, um, it was a really unique transition. I went to a Catholic nonprofit middle school in Lawrence with a graduating class of 11. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... Um, for me, the step up in population was incredible. Yeah. So a lot of my classmates were from all over the world. They were from New York, L.A., um, different parts of the U.S. And so for me, like the biggest thing was sort of um, a culture shock almost and being able to interact with a lot of people that weren't from like one city that I'd been used to my entire life. Um Another big part of it was that uh, there's a large socioeconomic dis um, like disparity or difference in a lot of the students that the school um, does, I think, a good job of like recognizing. But me coming from a nonprofit school that was explicitly for um, students with a certain income threshold, it was something that I definitely um, like experienced and grappled with throughout high school, especially um, at 14, 15. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the, the way I got into teaching was a lot of my teammates in co my college lacrosse team went to these, you know, northeast boarding schools and independent schools, and they were always talking about their experience. And I wanted to, you know, I was interested in teaching English and coaching lacrosse, and I did this summer experience at Choate, um, pretty close in in Connecticut, and I was just blown away by just the facilities and the library and the international population just in the summer of students from all over the world who wanted to come to Choate. And I was, you know, I went to a good school. I went to a public school outside of Philadelphia uh, in Berwyn, Pennsylvania, called Conestoga, and I had a great high school experience, like great teachers, you know, really good public school. But I was just blown away by, you know, that this is like a 
experience that high schoolers have, you know, before going to college. It was nicer in a lot of ways than most colleges. Um, so, you know, I feel like that is probably what, what the first time experience is like when you get to one of these prestigious New England boarding schools. You're like, wow, this, people actually go to a school like this. Yeah. I remember visiting campus and I was, I was blown away. Um, I think a lot of these schools have uh, amazing resources for the kids. Um, and it's, it's pretty incredible that high schoolers get to experience that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in the Penn Fellowship, what has your experience been like with some of the different schools and the different mentors? I remember when I was a Penn Fellow, I, I loved talking to some of the all-star teachers and mentors from these different schools because I feel like I could, I could pick up so much valuable information from them and their experience and the different ways that they approach the Penn Fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that been like for you? And I know... You know, you only have, what, two times during the year where you actually go to Penn and the other two meetings are on different independent school campuses? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's been a great experience. The other schools, um, getting to learn from seasoned teachers who've been teaching for over 15 years, it's, it's a lot to absorb. Um, and it's really great. I think the cohort model of being able to connect with other fellows who are in our position um, has also been super useful in getting to just like bounce ideas off of each other and what we're doing in our classes has been exceptional. It's also um, gotten me to reflect a lot on my experiences here at Gilman and how amazing of a mentor Matt Baum has been. Um, just super experienced, um, incredibly thoughtful, and he's been like really vital in my um, success and enjoyment as a first-year teacher. I remember observing Matt my first couple years teaching because I was trying to get some different perspectives of how to orchestrate the co-ed classroom with Mm -hmm. Roland Park and Bryn Mawr. And what I love so much about Matt's style of teaching is he's very, you know, there's never really a wrong answer. Mm -hmm. You know, he's very agreeable in the classroom. So whatever somebody says for a response or for an answer, he's always nodding his head and you're on the right track, but he'll, he'll, he'll be able to steer you in a very, you know, non you're wrong type of way. Um, I just, I liked his, I guess, general approach in the classroom of creating conversation and facilitating discussion between these different schools, which can be awkward at first. Um, as I'm sure, you know, absolutely. Um, but he's, he's just very good at that. Very smooth. Mm-hmm. And he's super approachable, as you're saying. And that's a big thing I've been trying to do in my classrooms that I've noticed um, is that kids feel really comfortable asking him questions after class, visiting him for office hours. So that sort of relational teaching is something I've tried to um, kind of incorporate into my classes, too. It's, it's good when like students feel like they can ask you really about anything. Um, so... Matt has been great in kind of seeing him in action. So, Will, how did you get into history, and what made you want to become a history teacher? Yeah, Jake, I actually never viewed myself as a history um, student until junior year in high school, and I think it showed me, like, the power of teaching um, and having someone who, like, really believes in you. 
but I remember my history teacher, Mr. Racklin, um, in my US history class, he taught us about growth mindset and he gave me exceptional feedback on my essay. And every time I met with him one-on-one, -on -one, he was approachable in a similar way to Matt is. Um, and really it just took him to see something in me that got me more interested in the topic. Um, so I started exploring it more in college as well. And something that fascinated me within college is sometimes you can pick electives that are more specific um, to your interests. And I remember thinking about wanting to learn about US immigration, um, wanting to learn about the Vietnamese American experience. Um, and sort of that led me to, history has always been a means for me to understand myself mm -hmm. and understand my community, understand um, the world around me. And it's easy to get into a rabbit hole um, when you're reading about history and you're like, yeah, that is, I'm, I'm seeing that in my day-to-day -day experience or in the past. So I started um, getting really into pursuing history to understand myself and understand the world. Yeah, it's a really cool way of thinking about history. I, I try to talk to my students about like why we study history and why history is interesting because I feel like, you know, when you're in high school, when you're younger, I feel like a lot of students think of it as just something they have to check off and get through and memorize things and regurgitate on the test. But now, this year, as I'm teaching history, you know, I've always been into history. I've always found it interesting. Like I've loved learning about U.S. history for as long as I can remember. But now that I'm teaching it, I'm thinking more about individuals and how history is really a study of people, which makes it just so much more interesting, the nuances and the complexities and the hypocrisy of the individual. You could look at any person in history through that lens, and it just makes for such an interesting study. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think this year it's been really important for me to talk to my students, as I'm sure you're doing too, about like why study history? What, what are we doing here? What's the purpose of me giving you this, you know, 31 mid multiple choice midterm evaluation? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, how did you, uh, how did you approach that? I guess that lens of immigration was what drew you to the subject mm -hmm. and what within immigration was so interesting to you? Yeah. Um, so Lawrence, my hometown, is very much an immigrant city. Um, from its inception, a lot of white Europeans came to Lawrence for a better life. Um, there's a lot of history in Lawrence regarding um, like unions and labor history. Um, and I think also in the night, um, starting around the 1940s, but especially in the 1960s, um, after the Hart Cellar Act, um, really Lawrence was a site in which a lot of immigrants from the Caribbean, um, from Southeast Asia, also came um, to Lawrence for a better life. And I remember, like, learning about that in a history classroom in college, and kind of seeing how these pieces of legislation that Congress was passing um, really played a role in the community that I interacted with. And kind of that's something that I always try to 
think about as I'm designing curriculum is like, how is history personal? Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to consider all the histories that my students are bringing into the classroom. So on the topic of like um, when we were just discussing of making history feel important to students, I think that students learn best when they feel like the material has like a direct relationship to their everyday life. Right. Um, so for me, exploring that history of immigration has been um, pretty crucial in developing my interest. Yeah. What was that class called and who taught it and what was the, I guess, structure of the college class you took? Yeah, it was called U.S. Migration slash Immigration. So my professor put a lot of thought into um, not only talking about immigration, but also internal migrations within the U.S. So the Great Migration, etc. It was taught by Professor Deppenbush, who was an assistant professor at Colgate Shout out to Professor Deppenbush. Um, She played a huge part of my interest in history and my life in college. Um, And basically, what I liked about that class was we had direct primary sources that just explained the day-to-day lives of um, immigrants throughout U.S. history. So, for example, we explored 1930s love letters sent back and forth across the U.S.-Mexico border. Wow. And reading journal articles like that where they could contextualize that into the history made me realize that history is about personal stories. History is about understanding um, how these forces are shaping our relationships with each other. Yeah. Um, And she brought a ton of articles like that that I'm actually looking to incorporate into the Gilman classroom so that students get the real feel of what the history was like. Yeah, I think that's a great approach and and something I can continue to try to work on in my class is making history about humans, not about facts, Mm -hmm. you know, because history is about facts, but I don't know how many students are going to be excited about learning, you know, hard facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's much more easy to attach yourself to the human being, the person going through this experience, you know, the emotions they felt, right, that kind of thing is uh, much more lasting or gives a much more lasting impression on, on the learner, I mm-hmm. think. Um, so in your class, what are you excited about going forward? What are some of the things that are working so far in your – do you have two classes, right, or just one this year? Yeah, two sections. Two sections. Of okay. U.S. history, so um, two sets of juniors. I think what's worked – particularly well is I've um, talked to Matt about relational learning and given that my classes are coordinated and that students are coming from different schools um, that was a big thing that I thought about was how are they going to interact with each other Um, our classes are really discussion based um, for the most part and so they need to uh, we need to cultivate like a good sense of community So it can't just be Gilman students all sitting in one place and RPCS or in Bryn Mawr students sitting all together. Mm -hmm. So getting them with just like day-to-day icebreakers, making sure that all students feel welcome in the class has been useful in getting them to interact with each other. And I think it's um, been paying off dividends, especially as we're getting into December, January. Um, 
And I think the students have been really engaged. I think when I've given, or in general, when uh, teachers have given students um, autonomy mm -hmm. um, as learners and a bigger role in the classroom and kind of try to minimize their own role, um, students really appreciate that. And so I think those are some big takeaways in my first semester of teaching. Um, but in terms of topics, I'm, I'm super excited for uh, the, f the latter part of the year too, um, given just my own interests. Like I've thought about how I'm gonna teach the New Deal, how I'm gonna teach the Cold War. Um, so on like the topics, I'm, I'm super psyched. Yeah, that's good because I haven't thought much about that. I'm I'm like a week by week taking it as as I can, you know. Uh, I, I find history so exciting to teach. It's fun. It's challenging, though. Like I would say maybe it's just because it's my first year teaching history, but I would say it's a little bit more challenging for me than English is because there's a little bit more pick and choose how you want to focus the class and what you want to focus on. And what you might be leaving out mm -hmm. if you focus on one thing. It's, it's, it's a complex subject, especially one year teaching all of U.S. history. Yeah. I think about that every day as I'm lesson planning. Um, and I looked over all of our respective midterms uh, to see what content we're covering. And I think it's cool that we have different um, emphases and interests that manifest in the classroom. And... That's like something that I think about all the time, though, is that if I'm dedicating this 80-minute class period to one particular part of the subject, then there's an opportunity cost um, that I'm not covering something else. Right. So it's, it's difficult, um, but I found that it's allowed me to be a little bit creative, yeah. um, which is cool. Um, so in your class, what do you think your students have gravitated towards uh, this semester? Like what's been their favorite person or subject to study in your estimation? Mm. That's a really good question. I think there was good interest in talking about the market revolution so far. We spent um, a good amount of class time um, on it. And pretty much one of the coolest things about the market revolution is it's this time period in American history with radical economic and social transformations. So I think students like that they see how gender roles are changing through the market revolution, um, or just like how the country, the actual physical landscape of the country is changing. Um, and of course, it's like really important in setting up the, um, the Civil War. And so I think that's a topic that students kind of enjoy is that it's something that gives them various different lenses to look at the history. So let me ask you my essay question that I had my students just complete. Uh, Andrew Jackson has a very debatable existence on the $20 bill because mm -hmm. of his presidential tenure was so, um, you know, positive in some ways and really negative in other ways. So we're thinking about taking Jackson off the $20 bill of everybody, maybe everybody in your, in, in American history, who do you, who would you recommend to replace Jackson on the 20? That's a great question. Um, I know they've been, there's been conversation about Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill 
which I think is um, would be a really interesting, good idea. I think it's actually in the works. Um, I th- I would love a 20th century figure on the $20 bill, like a more contemporary person, because I think we often associate our printed currency with like the founding fathers, which is, I think, great and important. But I also think that it would be kind of a change to have a more recent figure that is kind of in our cultural imagination or understanding. Anyone come to mind for you? That's a good question. Um, I was thinking, I guess you could say MLK is oh, one, is one. One, one figure that immediately kind of comes to my mind, but yeah. it's definitely a question I'll have to keep considering. Yeah. Yeah. I think the majority of my class chose Frederick Douglass, and I think that's a good answer because we, we spent a lot of time talking about Frederick Douglass, reading a narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Um, and I think, you know, I think he would make a great replacement because he was so influential on American history. Um, but MLK is a good one, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, Will, what are your plans for break? What are you, what are you getting up to? So I'm going to be in the Boston area. I'm going to be back in Lawrence um, seeing family. And I have a 12-year-old sister. Um, and so I'm just going to make sure. To Do you really? Some. What's the gap between you? You guys? 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. So I've got a 13, almost 14-year-old sister. We've got 15-year gap between us. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a cool experience. It's yeah. a cool experience, um, that gap. And so I'm just trying to make sure that she has an amazing uh, Christmas break. So I'm, th- <laughs> I'm thinking what she wants to do, what restaurants she might want to go to. Um, but really, those two weeks, I'm just going to be spending time with family and catching up with friends. There are some friends since um, high school that I haven't talked to, but they're in the Boston area, so got to catch up. Uh, what grade is your sister in? She's in seventh. Seventh grade? Yeah, seventh grade. Awesome. That's yeah. fun. Yeah, I remember when Jenny was a little bit younger. It was fun coming home from college, and, you know, Santa Claus was still in in the work, so we had to set up the house. We had Elf on the Shelf. Uh, now she's kind of a little teenager, but uh, still really fun to go see, you know, your little siblings. For sure. And she actually uh, goes to the same middle school that I went to. So we've had the same teachers. We've had uh, very similar but very different experiences. So helping her um, and kind of guiding her through my own ex- or talking about my own experiences have has been awesome. It's gotten me to reflect, um, but also trying to just help her in any way that I can navigate, um, like be middle school and eventually high school. Um, what has it been like for you, I guess, relocating from Boston area and then Colgate to Baltimore, like new experience, new city. Do you like it? What do you, what do you think about Baltimore? Yeah, Baltimore has been great. That was a big thing when, uh, interviewing for Gilman, I realized I've really never left the Northeast. Yeah, but I enjoyed um, the parts of Baltimore and just Baltimore overall when um, I was here on my sort of tour. And Baltimore's been great. I think it honestly reminds me a lot of the Northeast. Um, and I also like that Baltimore's smaller. Yeah. So if I was teaching in New York, 
Um, New York for me is like, every time I go, I'm like very overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Baltimore, it's been cool because it's a smaller city. So you're able to sort of navigate around, explore different neighborhoods. And it's, it's been cool. Yeah. yeah. I like how easy it is to get downtown and then, you know, come back up to Gilman, which you, you're still in Baltimore, but it's, but it's a little bit outside of downtown. Yeah. It's and quick. It's like a 15, 20 minute drive. Yeah. So it's awesome. Cool. Um, all right. So let's get to maybe the book racks that you have for us or one book rack or how many, however many you brought in. I brought two. Brought two. Yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't help myself. So one is a bit more, so they're both actually history related. Okay. Um, one is called Silencing the Past by Michel Rolf Trulot, um, The Power and the Production of History. And basically it introduces this idea of historical silence um, in history production. So the fact that there's omission in facts um, and then there's also historical silences in how we interpret those facts and who's choosing those facts. Um, so I think that for me was a great book um, because it made me helped me understand history as a discipline overall. Um, and it gets challenges me as a teacher to um, understand where historical silences might be in my curriculum. And I'm very open with um, this with my students and I've tried to kind of mention to them or um, ask them to consider how the classroom is a place where historical silences are um, sort of amplified or produced. So I tell them based on my own interests as a teacher, that dictates um, mm -hmm. the content. And so I'm just trying to get them to um, be critical of primary sources, um, being able to understand whose voices are being heard and what is not being said. Right. Um, so what... For people who aren't as familiar with that term, like what do you mean by historical silences and maybe what's an example of one or two? Mm -hmm. So a historical silence is a lack of, no, uh, a, like a gap in knowledge or the historiography um, that is either intentional or unintentional. Um, so lack of documentation, for example. Um, an example could be, um, for example, I think a lot of history classrooms struggle with historical silences as it pertains to indigenous groups mm -hmm. because of documentation, lack thereof, whether intentional or unintentional. Um, so that's kind of one example. Yeah, um, I think that Titus Kafar uh, TED Talk, so good at like, talking about or, or showing an example like the visual in the visual realm of what a historical silence looks like because he you know you've seen it you showed your students but he spray paints pretty much half of a painting that he did himself of a of a replica and highlights different aspects of the painting that have been brushed aside or not as documented as maybe other aspects of history that we typically look at and study. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think that registers with students, and I think that's a great, I guess, term to talk about in the history classroom because there are so many parts of history that you could miss or you, you, you don't go deep enough into 
for different reasons, but uh, lack of documentation, lack of focus, mm-hmm. or just you know intentionally skipping over parts that we don't want to talk about in his in history. Yeah, and that's that was a great video, um, Jake, and I'm glad you sent it to me. My kids or my students um, like really appreciated it, and it definitely facilitated a great conversation. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's good. And then the other book, would you, what else? Yeah, the other book is called The Great Cat Massacre and Other Episodes in French Cultural History by Robert Darden. So why I picked this book is kind of what we were talking about. Unfortunately, a lot of students um, learn about history as a memorization of facts, but this is purely um, storytelling with robust ways of finding um, sources through folktale or through oral histories. Um, and in particular, the chapter um, or the story of the Great Cat Massacre, it was sort of set in Paris in the late 1730s in a sort of proto-industrial age in which the Industrial Revolution hasn't taken hold yet. Um, but you're starting to sort of see French society change. And these apprentice printers um, that resented their working conditions and their treatment basically take it out on the owner's cat, hmm. who uh, is sort of a symbol for privilege or their perceived um, um, better treatment by their employer. Hmm. And so it was a really it's a really cool book in that you learn a lot about what it was like at the time in Paris in 1730. Um, but through a story, through um, a story, which I rec- that's why I recommend the book, is I think it shows that history is really storytelling. It's yeah. what we do with those stories. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot of great stories. That's just one chapter in the book. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too, because as much as, you know, the textbook for a history class is necessary... Uh, I think this Jill Lepore, these truths book has been helpful in my class because she's so good at weaving all the facts and all the information that you need to know about American history into something that's readable as a narrative, you know, and it just, it's a little bit more exciting and interesting to read than the textbook, I think. Yeah, her prose is beautiful and uh, it's cool to read history in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to pull from Jill Lepore's these truths it's a great book um any movies that you're looking forward to watching over break i know this killers of a flower moon i want to go see in theaters the rotunda theater that i saw in napoleon it's seven dollars on tuesday so that could be a yeah could be an option today maybe that sounds kind of that sounds awesome yeah honestly like i really want to watch some of the classics yeah um i'm the type of person who like hasn't seen a lot of the great ones like Shawshank Redemption. You haven't seen Shawshank Redemption? No. Oh, there you go. Um, so I'm probably going to watch some of the big names that have been always been out there that your parents might talk about, but I haven't seen. Um, Shawshank Redemption just is one that comes to mind. That's awesome. What do you like to do when you go home and you're in your hometown again? Like what are some of the things that you'll do when you get back 
Yeah, I actually have maintained a pretty good re uh, or close relationship with my middle school. So I've taught there over the, the past couple summers, um, and they're having a Christmas show. So I'm probably going to check that out, see old teachers, see um, my sister um, perform a play. Um, but really in Mass or in Massachusetts or when I have free time, I just kind of relax with family. Uh, we'll go out to eat. Um, I like to exercise with my sister, so she's been getting really into basketball. Nice. So we'll we'll shoot some hoops. For there you sure. go. Yeah. Do you go into Boston much? Yeah, especially coming out of high school. I actually didn't go to Boston too much. Like growing up, just forty-five minutes away. Yeah. Um, I probably went under like eight to ten times. Yeah, you gotta get ready for the traffic. Yeah. Getting in. The traffic is gnarly, so yeah. I'll probably take the train. There you go. Yeah. Is there a uh, T-stop in Lawrence? Is that too far? Yeah, there's a commuter rail. Um, so easy, quick hour. I'm definitely going to explore Boston because um, I've only explored a couple neighborhoods like Cambridge, Alston, but there's a lot more out there that I want to check out. Great town for history, for a history teacher too. You know, you could go on the, um, what's the trail called? Uh, Freedom Trail. Mm -hmm. Faneuil Hall, um, North End. I mean, there's just so much history in that city that you could check out. Absolutely. I'll report back. <laughs> maybe incorporate some of that into the curriculum. <laughs> All right. Will, uh, maybe one more question. Uh, from the people that you've met and you've gotten to know so far at Gilman, if you could recommend somebody for the podcast that you would like to hear more from and learn more about their background and what they're interested in, who would you recommend? That's a great question. I was going to say Mr. U.S., but you already had him because um, I think he's been incredible on this journey with me, super insightful, um, and I always love to hear his stories. Um, I think somebody from the history department deserves a shout-out and I would love the Gilman community would benefit from hearing more about them. Um, Miss Finnerty, yeah, Miss Hampton, yep. I think they would be great, great guests. Yes, I need to get them. We we need to get them on. We haven't we've had Matt Baum on, Brooks Matthews, Mr. Slutkin has been on. Mm -hmm. um, who else is in the history department? And I've seen all of. Them those episodes too oh you have on two times speed yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice yep. thanks for watching and thanks for coming in today well it's been a fun time and uh wishing you a great winter break thanks you too jake it's been fun <laughs>